0: All right, if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, let's look at James chapter 1. We're we're slowly getting there, working our way through James. Our text for this morning comes at the very end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. James is writing and he says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We have been working through James. And over the last few weeks, uh, the last three weeks, four weeks, we have looked at James's teaching as it regards the importance of the Word of God in the life of the Christian. The Word saves, the Word sanctifies, the Word sustains. And we come to the finish of chapter 1, and these last couple of verses, and it makes me wonder how many of you Have known someone that you looked up to, that you thought maybe was a spiritual giant, only to find out later that their life was defined and riddled by great sin, great moral failure, someone you looked up to? I'm sure that we can all probably think of someone publicly, but... uh, as many public examples that we have, I'm sure we all have personal examples as well. One public example that comes to mind that, that really had an impact on me was, um, uh, that I can think about almost immediately, was Ravi Zacharias. Anybody know who Ravi Zacharias is? He was one of the greatest Christian apologists of our day. This man could defend the gospel. He knew the word backward and forward. He knew the doctrines of the Bible, and he he preached biblical fidelity and doctrinal orthodoxy, and he he could defend scripture. That's what an apologist does. They, They specialize in argumentation and arguing the validity of the word of God. Paul was an apologist. He defended scripture and doctrine. One of the greatest apologists of our day. Had a huge ministry, Ravi Zacharias Ministries And thousands and thousands of people became convinced of the gospel and the doctrines of the Bible through his ministry. He taught truth to millions. And millions had his, he had the ear of millions. They listened to him. But it came out very shortly after he passed that his life was morally corrupt. He was involved in, in all kinds of sexual sin. Um, not, not just, I mean, it was, it was morally corrupt. We'll just put it that way. More, much more so than anyone would have thought or imagined. His sin was deep. It was prevalent. He spoke great things, and yet he lived a lie. And he no doubt deceived his own heart. And this is what we come to in James, in these last few verses this morning. James addresses this for us today, this kind of thing. The example I gave you in Ravi Zacharias is a, that's a big one, you know? But sin, we learn very early on in the Scripture, crouches at the door. It doesn't have to be so blatantly obvious. So as we work through the text this morning, I want to impress upon you three warnings from James, three tests from James, one implication from James, and finally one exhortation from my own life. So that's how we will flow. Are you ready? Warning number one. James warns us, And we find this in verse 16 about deception. There are three warnings about deception that James gives us in his letter. The first warning is in verse 16. James goes after how we perceive God and how we deceive ourselves about who God is and about His character. So if we back up, we, we got to back up a little bit to get the full context. So back up to verse 13. James says, and we've covered this because we, we're working through James. We've already touched this, but we're looking at it from this angle of deception and this warnings that he gives us. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person when he is tempted is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James addresses temptation and the source of temptation. You know, we'll say, God is tempting me, or God is leading me into sin. You know, this struggle that He has me in, or this, this, this place that He has me is a temptation for me, and God is tempting me. And God wants, one of the biggest temptations, God wants me to be happy. So, in order for me to be happy, I have to forsake the biblical mandates, forsake biblical righteousness, and go after what my flesh wants. That's a That's a lie. God does not tempt you. He does not tempt anyone. That is false. James warns us about this kind of thinking. He says it's a deception. It's a lie from within. Temptation comes from within the self. Each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We've covered that. So don't let anyone tell you that God is tempting you. God does not tempt anyone into sin. You tempt yourself. Don't be deceived by this, James says. And then he follows this up with a statement about the goodness of God. He says, every good and perfect gift, everything that is good comes to us from God. And what comes to us from God is only and always ever good. Amen. Now think about that. What comes to us from God is only and always ever good, and it's perfect. So temptation tries to deceive us from within. It challenges your perception about God. Circumstances in life try to deceive you from without. They challenge your perception about God. When things are going well for you, you think, well, God must be pleased with me. When things aren't going well, when you're uncomfortable, when when the pain is there, you think, well, God must be angry with me. And church, that's how the pagan gods operate. That's not how Yahweh, the God of the Bible, operates. Everything that is good comes from God. And what God gives is always and only ever good and perfect. Remember way back up in verse 2. When James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So look, he says, count it all joy. That means rejoice when you face trials. Count it joy when things aren't comfortable. Count it joy when you are persecuted and reviled and attacked and mocked. Because those things produce steadfastness. And then if you skip down to verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So trials produce steadfastness. Steadfastness obtains the crown of life. And then in verse 17, James reminds us that God only gives what is good and perfect. So trials are good and perfect. Because they produce steadfastness. And steadfastness helps me obtain the crown of life. So when trials come and and when you face pain and when you face uncertainty and you don't know which way to go, lean into the uncompromised character of God. The reward is good, the crown of life. It's certainly good and perfect. And so is the trial because it produces the thing that you need to obtain the reward. Trials produce steadfastness. Steadfastness produces the ability to obtain the crown, and God only gives what is good is perfect, good and perfect. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. who needs to be reminded of this immutable character of God, that He is always good and always perfect. You know you, you struggle with life, you struggle with circumstances, you struggle with relationships. whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're facing. I can tell you, and James will tell you, trust in the goodness of God. Trust in His goodness. Just like the the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they went into the fiery furnace. The Lord is faithful to bring you to the fire. He's faithful in bringing you to the fire. Amen. 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 Trials that produce steadfastness. He is faithful in being with you in the fire. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. And he is faithful to see you through the fire. For when you have stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Do not be deceived about who God is to you. He is only ever good and perfect. You may not fully understand the situation that you're facing. You may not fully understand the pain You may not fully understand your suffering that you're going through, but remain steadfast. Lean into the perfect goodness of God, and you will be greatly and eternally rewarded. Thank you, Lord, that you are giving me more of what I need to obtain that crown. Warning number two. James warns us about the deception of self, being deceived about ourselves. The second warning comes in verse 22. He targets the, the, how we judge ourselves, how we look at ourselves and walk away thinking about ourselves. And we covered this in great length last week. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if you or for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. So, failing to obey Scripture, hearing the Word but not doing the Word, leads to self-deception. And again, we covered that pretty well at length last week. I don't want to spend too much time on it here. Um, Last week, the Word that sustains. First, James warns us, don't be deceived. And then he comes here and he says, don't deceive yourself. So, very briefly, just like we talked about, self-deception comes When we judge ourselves, when we judge the flesh, by the flesh, according to the flesh, to obtain a fleshly or carnal result. We we walk away feeling good about ourselves, feeling like we are righteous, when in fact we are full of wickedness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. So you look at your natural face in the mirror, James says, and you mean to judge yourself by the standards of culture and not the standards of Scripture, and you come away saying, look how good I am. I'm so much more righteous than that guy over there. I mean, he's really got it bad. I don't do the things that he does. I'm good. Like we talked last week, that, that makeup mirror, that, that, that'll get you. We're not looking at that kind of thing. We're, we're just, I look cute today. Amen. John, First John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I said last week that when you judge wickedness by wicked standards, you can only produce more wickedness. But James warns us that we cannot merely look at the Bible or merely hear the Word, but we must do the Word. We must surrender to the Word of God in humble and grateful obedience. Amen. Don't deceive yourselves. And then warning number three. He warns us about being deceived about our righteousness. So, first he warns about our perception of God. He says, Don't be deceived, verse 16, and 18. Then he warns us about our perception of ourselves. He says, Don't deceive yourselves, verse 22 through 24. James' third warning, verse 26 and 27, we just read this morning. This is about self righteousness that boasts many things, and yet it does not produce any real fruit of righteousness. He gets to the very heart of the matter. And that is the heart. Amen. You are deceived in your heart, he says. So he's touching on issues of ultimate importance. You're deceived not in your mind. You're deceived not about the character of God. You are deceived in your heart. He's touching on issues of salvation. Amen. Amen. Ultimate Eternal destiny. Touching on issues of true faith. What does it mean to have true faith that is alive? Let's read it. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is righteous and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Interestingly, James frames the warning about worthless religion. He, he, he links it directly to how we treat others. Do you see that? Amen. Specifically orphans and widows in, in this case. Not, not how well we keep the rules. Not how knowledgeable we are about the scriptures. Not how quickly we can find the book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament. But about how the joy of our salvation in Christ Amen overflows in love, real, tangible love for others. Let me see if I can draw a line for you from the words of James here back to the words of Jesus. Jesus said when they quizzed him about the law, do you remember he said that the first and great commandment is that you love God with everything you've got. I'm paraphrasing. Well, we see this in James' first two warnings about deception. God is always and only good. Trust Him and do what He says. Love Him with all your heart and all your strength, and all your word and all your deed. And in the second commandment, Jesus said, is like the first, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled is to visit the people in need and to keep yourself clean. Now we're going to get to the statement about bridling the tongue here in a bit, but I think the point James is making here is about religion. About self-righteousness. So do not be deceived, James says. God does not tempt you. What he gives you is only ever good for you. People who don't obey the word of God have deceived themselves. People who talk righteous talk but have no righteous love are deceived in their own hearts. And as I said, that's the heart of the matter. I'm not trying to give you a play on words. I'm not trying to be clever with my words. I see a progression in James's discourse here with his warnings to us. Amen. Amen. I mean, And it starts with having a wrong view of God, and then it leads to having a wrong view of, of where we are. Our standards, where we get our standards from, and, and so that we, we have a wrong view of God, and so then we elevate ourselves to the level where God is, and now we have a wrong view of righteousness. If you are deceived about who God is, you'll be deceived about who you are, and ultimately you will be deceived about your own eternal destination. Matthew seven twenty three. Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So three warnings about being deceived. But James does not leave us hanging. He gives us three tests to know whether or not we are being deceived. Because that's really the crux of the matter your salvation of your eternal soul to the glory of God. And James gives us uh, these, these things in a couple of verses, these three tests to know if our religion is worthless, if our religion is pure and undefiled before God. He says that we must, number one, bridle the tongue, visit the orphans, two, and the widows in their affliction. And number three, keep ourselves unstained from the world. So let's take them one at a time. Bridle the tongue. Nearly everywhere that religion is mentioned in the Bible or in the New Testament, it's it's in a negative light. Mainly because nearly everywhere it's mentioned, it's always used to call out the sin and hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees who are the religious leaders of the day. They had a religion that was purely external, purely for show. Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus, when he's pronouncing woes to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. And here's the, here's the real kicker. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, verse 28. But within, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So everybody around you looks at you and says, Wow, I wish I could be a lion like that guy. He's a spiritual giant. But inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That is worthless religion. Amen. Amen. So you know the language of church. You know how to speak Christian churchianity. You know the cultural norms of Christianity, but there's no real fruit in your life. James has got a lot to say about the tongue. Probably more than than any other writer in the New Testament. He has a lot to say about the tongue. The sins that we commit as the mouth speaks. I think it's because he's very aware of what Jesus warned them about when Jesus spoke about the things that we say. In Matthew 12, verse 36, Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Well, that's, that's frightening. Especially for you chit-chatters and idle talkers who just jabber, 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 jabber. Every idle word you'll give an account for. In James's letter, boy, let me just go down the list for you. He warns us against self-justifying speech. So when we're tempted, uh, no one should blame God saying, God tempts me, that's self-justifying. I didn't do it, God did it. That's chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He criticizes those who flatter the rich and humiliate the poor, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He condemns the careless speech that wishes people well but never lifts a hand to help them. That's chapter 2, verse 18. Excuse me, 16. He questions the superficial claim that I have faith if you don't have any deeds to confirm your faith. That's verse 18, chapter 2. He condemns tongues that praise God one moment and curse people the next, chapter 3, verse 9. He scolds those who slander and judge their brothers, chapter 4, verse 11. He condemns boastful plans as if one can do whatever he decrees. So I can do whatever I want to do. That's chapter four, verse thirteen. James says that the tongue, this little organ here, is one of the, uh, is uh, where worthless religion is born. Amen. Amen. And the one who has worthless religion is prone to things like boasting and cursing and sparking conflicts that are set on fire. He says by hell itself. True religion, pure, undefiled religion, righteousness that is in Christ. Pulls these things in. It reigns them in. It does not let them run, run rampant. Remember, James said, uh, uh, you know, put away with all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Pure religion reigns these things in. Amen. Amen. So watch what you say, dear Christian. Be careful how you say it. Some people just like to talk to hear themselves talk, I think. If every idle word, every careless word that we say is going to be judged, if we're going to be held account to it, I would think the fewer words, the better. Amen, amen. Now, you, you let that sit on you however you want to, all right? He tells us, secondly, that we must visit orphans and widows in their affliction. True religion does this. The Old Testament calls this group the fatherless and the widow. So either way, they are these people, orphans, widows, fatherless, widows. They represent the poor, defenseless members of our societies. These guys suffer poverty, and they suffer exploitation at the hands of those more powerful than them. Remember way back in the beginning... We're, we talked about James saying, don't be deceived about the character of God. In Psalm 68, verse 5, we learn that God, the Father, is the Father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. In Psalm 146, verse 9, we learn the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, God curses those who deprive justice. He says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Therefore, the Lord tells Israel to follow Him and show kindness to the most needy. They receive a portion of Israel's tithe as part of the law. He requires that they be given opportunity and the dignity of work. And he says, leave the corners of your fields so that they can glean the fields. Caring for the most needy is essential to true religion. And I know that we're all thinking, oh, I got this. I care about them. Just wait. Kindness to the needy. In this case, James is speaking about widows and orphans. Because in, in, when James is writing, they are the most powerless, penniless groups of people. Now, you don't have to be a widow or an orphan in our culture to be powerless and penniless. Um, but that's the point. Those who, who, who have nothing. Those who rely on the mercy and the goodness of others. He said kindness to those people is pure kindness. It is mercy... For the sake of mercy. Because you, you help them without any hope of getting anything tangible in return. The fact is that the very poor are probably going to be very poor for a while. Amen. Amen. The gospel teaches us that all of us were once poor. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know their spiritual poverty Blessed are those who know that apart from God's grace, we are worse off than any of the widows or orphans. And then he gives us another test. He says to remain unstained. Jesus tells us that we must keep ourselves, James tells us we must keep ourselves unstained from the world. Now, it's interesting language, I think, when he says that. You must keep yourself. You keep. And there's a discussion to be had there about about that instruction. You keep yourself unstained. James charges each one of you believers, each one of us who call ourselves Christians, to maintain our own cleanliness, to remain unstained or unspotted, if you have a KJV version, from the world. So James says, keep yourself unstained from the world. I don't think this means that we must be separate from the world That we must hide ourselves away from the world. Because, how are we supposed to hide ourselves away from the world if we are also supposed to visit the widows and the orphans and the needy? We can't do that if we stay out of the world. You know, Paul kind of addressed this when when he gave instructions to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He was giving them instructions about how they should deal with people who call themselves Christians but still practice all kinds of sin and sexual immorality. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to come out of the world. In other words, Paul says, when I told you to separate yourselves from sinners, I didn't mean that you should completely cut yourself off from them. I didn't mean that, there's, that you should have nothing ever to do with them. There's just no way. You'd have to come out of the world to do that. I think James is saying the same kind of thing, or he has that same kind of thing in mind, saying that we must live in the world but not be changed by it. We are in it, but we must not become of it. We are of Christ. We're not of the world. Remember when Jesus, taking you back to the Gospels, when Jesus touched the leper. Do you remember that? He touched the leper to heal him. Well, that was a bold action that he did. It was bold. Not not the healing. That wasn't so bold. I mean, Jesus, he could have merely spoken the word, and the leper's disease would have gone away in an instant. He did even greater things with just the spoken word. He spoke the word and the wind and the seas obeyed. He spoke the word and Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. He spoke the word and Lazarus came dancing out of the tomb. But here he touched the leper. You can go look at it for yourself. It's Matthew chapter 8, the very beginning. He touched the unclean person. Now, According to Levitical law, the law that 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 Jesus lived under, if you touch an unclean person, a leper, you are unclean. Ceremonially, ritualistically unclean. And according to Levitical law, that should have made Jesus unclean, but it didn't. He remained unstained from the world. He was able to minister to the diseased without becoming diseased himself. And we need to remember that We are called to minister to the diseased without becoming diseased ourselves. We must go out among sinners without being sinners ourselves. We have to be lights to the world. How can we do that if we are full of darkness, though? This is what James warns us against. Wash yourselves regularly, dear Christian, in the water of the word Cleanse yourself with prayer. We must be in the world. How can you expect to reach the lost if we refuse to have anything to do with them? But we must not become stained by it. So, one implication. Doing what is right. There's something that James says in chapter 4 that really strikes me here. He's telling us in chapter 1, don't be all talk. Pure religion bridles the tongue, helps the poor, remains unstained from the world. We've talked about what those things kind of mean. Then in chapter 4, verse 17, James says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now that is a lot different than saying, you know to do good, but you do bad anyway, that is sin. It's a subtle change, but a huge difference in meaning. If you know that you are not supposed to sin, but you sin anyway, then you're truly guilty of sin. That's not what he's saying. See, I always took this phrase, this sentence in chapter 4, verse 17, growing up. I always took this in a very passive sense. Meaning just that right there. Meaning that I was supposed to uh, avoid sinning. James is calling me to associate the doings of my life with avoiding the guilt of sin. Just, just avoid sin and you'll be all right. That's not what James says though. Because that's pretty weak. If you know that something is sin and you do it anyway, it's sin for you. Well, that, that's, Duh. <laughs> duh. So I hadn't stopped to really think about what James is saying here. I don't guess I ever took the effort because the alternative is utterly devastating to the notion of passive Christianity. James is not talking merely about passive avoidance of sinful behavior. You can get rid of the TVs in your home. You can throw away every smut book that you've got. You can turn off the radio. You can eliminate social media. You can put blinders on and never uh, see anything objectionable. You can stay in a solitary room and never talk to another person for as long as you live and pray to God that you never have an evil thought for as long as you live. And that is not enough, James says. I used to have a very unbiblical desire. I still have the desire but I've surrendered it to the Lord. Amen. To, to live in the mountains in a cabin only accessible by a helicopter. Because <laughs> I'm not, I don't people very well. Um, but I realize that's not a gospel desire. I cannot do what James tells me I must do in solitude. Amen. Being separate from the world. Look at the words he says. Whoever knows to do right, to do the right thing, and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's not sufficient to not be guilty of murder. I didn't kill anybody, so I guess I'm going to heaven. It's not sufficient to not lie. or to never steal. True religion, faith that is pure and undefiled before God, is not passive. It is active and alive. It drives us and requires us not to just turn away from evil, but to do what we know is right. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him it is sin. This is devastating for anyone that wants to say my faith is real because I I go to church. Or I read the Bible. Or I post scriptures on social media. Those things are not the test of real faith. Real true religion. I feel like James very pointedly raises the bar for us here. It is worthless for someone to say, I support helping others. I'm totally behind that when you don't actually help others. It's worthless. It's just talk. In chapter 2, James says, What good is it if you say, go in peace and be well and be warm and be fed if you don't give them what is needed for the body? What good is it? So away with paying lip service to your religion. Your religion calls you to action. To do something. If you know to do good and fail to do it, it's a sin for you. That's the implication. And I think that's heavy. So here's the exhortation, and I'll I'll close with this. This kind of thing may seem like a very heavy burden and a heavy weight. Um, Like I'm, I'm laying... Something that's too heavy to carry on you. Like you've got to be out there. You have to be actively helping someone all the time. Seeking out the, the poor and the downtrodden. And if you're not doing that, then you're... Because you know to do that. And if you're not doing that, you're sinning. I'm not trying to lay a heavy burden on you. An admonition like that, that you must actively seek to help others, that, that can seem overwhelming. If you're like me, you, and you have a... You know, my, my social circle... Again, I I don't. I don't do a whole lot of outgoingness. I'm not. I'm not a real people guy. I have my little circle, and I'm, I'm comfortable in that circle. And and the things I do in my everyday life don't often take me outside of that circle. I don't often run into people who are very needy or helpless. Not often. So when I look at a scripture like this and says, I'm, you know, I, I, that's pure religion, that, that we go and we do these things, I think, I don't, I don't have much opportunity for that. I would say to you from personal experience that if that's you, like me, you probably don't see the needs because you're not looking for them. So here's how I addressed it in my own life. And this is the exhortation for you. I asked the Lord to open my eyes to see those who are in the most need. To see them. Remember when Jesus talked about the field that's white for harvest? He said, look up and see. that You won't see it if you don't look up. Amen. If you don't look, you won't see the harvest if you're not looking for the harvest. So I asked the Lord, Lord, open my eyes to see those who are in the most need. I made that a matter of regular prayer. And when you pray about something regularly, it starts to really matter to you. It really does. That's why prayer helps you overcome anger. Helps you overcome bitterness towards someone who's harmed you. Start praying good. That's why the Bible says Jesus said, bless those who curse you. That's not for them. That's for your sake so you don't fall into sin. That's to help me not be bitter against them because I start blessing them in prayer. Guess what? It's hard to hate someone I'm praying blessings on. The Lord, show me those who are in most need. Open my eyes. Make that a matter of regular prayer. Like I said, the circles I run in, I don't don't normally see those kinds of people. Not the people that fit the description like, like James is giving it. In the text. So here's what I also prayed. Lord. Put those people in my path. Change my path. So that I am. Confronted with those people. Thing is. I want to be tried. In that way. Because it's so very easy for us to give lip service to to helping the the less fortunate. Oh, yeah, I'd I'd help. Yeah, I'm going to help. I'm good. I'll do it. But then when we're actually confronted with it, I felt it in my own life. You know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. This is what we're supposed to do. I know this. But some guy comes up to you at the gas station and says, hey, man, can I get 20 bucks? Help some guy, you know, you help a poor veteran get to wherever. It's always a story like that. You 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 feel your wallet getting (laughs) tighter, and like, no, I don't, I don't, I just can't, I can't, I don't have. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Oh, y'all are all more spiritual than I am. Okay, well, that's what happens to me. And so I I want to be tested in this way. To know that my faith is real. Lord. Because it'll build faith. When I pass the test, it's gold. It's gold for me. I want to know that my faith is genuine. I want to be able to trust the Lord enough with what He's given me that when I do what He tells me to do, He will provide for me according to His riches in glory. I don't have to worry about it. I've been obedient to Him. I've done what I know to do is good, and it has not been sin to me. And the Lord has promised to supply all of my need according to His riches and glory. Let's pray, Father God. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together, and we thank you most of all for Your Word, Lord. I pray that that we leave here with a, a sense, God, that You have called us not to be passive but to be very active in, our, in the exercise of our faith. Jesus challenged us, commanded us, to let our light shine before men that they would see our good works and give you glory. Lord, put us in the path of people who need you. And let us be that light, that city on a hill that shines for you in the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.